if you would open up your Bible to uh, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to be moving out of chapter 1, um, and, uh, and if, you, uh, if you thought we spent uh, quite a bit of time in chapter 1, you might, you might get whiplash this morning working through uh, chapter 2, and so um, just, just take note and, uh, and be careful as we, as we read the scriptures. Um, we're going to read and then pray, and we will, we will consider God's word. The scripture says in Matthew chapter 2, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi, it says in the Greek from the east, came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, I forgot to turn my mic on, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared and dreamed to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. 
that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time in his word. Father, thank you that we can open your word, and we thank you that we know when we open your word that it will teach us about your care for us and the love of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we know that your Holy Spirit speaks to us and shapes our hearts and minds and transforms us into your image when we believe the gospel. And so we pray this morning, Lord, that, that any feelings of hostility towards the gospel, and we can have them buried within us, or any feelings of indifference, and they are easy to ignore initially, but then to let creep in over time, would be replaced by exuberant worship, that they would be replaced by obedience, and that they would be replaced by a passion to worship and to know you as you have revealed yourself. We just pray that you would encourage and transform us now by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, We come to an interesting passage. Um, We're we're in an interesting section of the gospel uh, introducing the ministry of the Messiah. Uh, Matthew is describing proofs, things which demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the one that the world, that the Jewish nation as well has been paying, uh, waiting for, looking for, the one that they've been, been hoping would come to save them. And so it's interesting to note that the scripture says here, um, or that, that, that as we review and look at the scripture, that there's nothing in chapter 2 that describes anything specific about Jesus himself, okay? There are no words or works of Jesus. We are still uh, working through the background. Okay? The, the purpose here is not to give the reader information about Jesus' childhood, but instead to talk more about who he is, not in terms of his person, right? That was chapter one, uh, that he is the God-man, that he comes to fulfill biblical prophecy to take away sin, but instead to demonstrate, one, more fulfillment of scripture in his coming, but two the way that the world receives this young child, the way that the world responds to the news that he has come. Uh, One scholar has said that Matthew 1 and 2 are a tight introduction to the gospel, so well written that every major theme that will be covered in the remainder of the gospel, every major idea is captured in chapters 1 and 2, and we're just going to see Matthew working out those themes like a skillful musician who's written an enormous composition of music, how he brings themes back and repeats them and, uh, and emphasizes different things. So we're not going to find anything new in the rest of the gospel, although it will be challenging and different. All of the major ideas are right here. We find rulers in this passage. And they are hostile to the coming of Christ. The Jewish religious leaders who should have expected him were indifferent to the coming of Christ. But the Gentiles and the true people of God welcomed and worshipped Jesus when he entered into 
the world. We, we come upon the familiar Christmas passage in the first 12 verses of this passage, right? You, you are familiar with the lawn ornaments that are placed out at, at Christmas time. You've got, the, uh, you've got the, the father figure of Joseph, the protector of Jesus, and Jesus in the manger, and Mary, and they're kind of like in this hut that will not protect them from the elements. You know, maybe it'll keep the rain off them, but it certainly doesn't stop the wind from blowing. If, if we put them in a house, we wouldn't be able to see them. Um, so we, we take the front wall off, and there's Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And somewhere off to the side here, right, there are usually some shepherds. Maybe they're like peering in the window, depending on how they're artfully arranged on the lawn. But then over here are the wise men coming with their camels. It probably didn't happen exactly like that. The shepherds showed up when he was born, but the magi show up significantly later. And we see this in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We find this in the first 12 passages, uh, first 12 verses. It says, After Jesus was born, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, We saw he who has been born king of the Jews, or where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That means that, that when his, his star arose, whatever the star is, we'll talk about that in just a second, when it, when it appeared, it appeared when he was born, and these men called Magi, which uh, we, we find a similar concept way back in Daniel 1.20, um, Nebuchadnezzar speaking about the magicians and enchanters, the wise men, the sorcerers that were in his kingdom. Uh, the Magi see the star and they say, something significant has happened. This child has come into the world. We need to travel and pay honor to him. We need to go and welcome him into the world. And so they begin to travel. It could have taken them as long as two years to arrive there. And they would have shown up and, and found the, the, uh, Jesus as a, as a young toddler and not as a newborn infant. Notice their question. Their question was not, where is he who was born to become king of the Jews? But where is he born king of the Jews? His status as king doesn't come to him later in life, according to them. They know that the king has been born because they see the star and they've read perhaps prophecies that were left behind by the Jews um, in, in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And they know that he's coming and they come to worship him. They saw the star and they traveled. What, what was this star? Um, Scripture's clear about what it's clear about, and it's unclear about what it's unclear about, and we have no idea. I've read a bunch of articles about whether or not it was a comet, or whether or not it was a real star, or whether it was some kind of smaller star that just hung out in the upper atmosphere and then came down later. I read one scholar believes it might have been very similar to the pillar of fire that led Israel for 40 years through the wilderness. I have no clue. I know it doesn't act like a normal star. Because if a normal star were to stand above your house, you and everyone else in the entire world would be incinerated. Um, so it's probably not that. So, so the Magi come and they're asking this question. They kind of wander into town and as they're, they're moving around, they're probably asking different people, where's the king of the Jews? Where's the, the one who's been born? And, and they're like, we don't know, but Herod lives up there and he's our king. He's the one who rules over it. Um, who rules over us, it says that Herod hears, we see in verses 3 through 6, and he's troubled. And all Jerusalem is troubled 
with him. Herod is troubled because somebody perhaps has been born into David's line and will be a rival king to him. Herod is not an Israelite. He's an Edomite, and so he has no right to the throne. He's, he's been given it by the Roman overseers. Jerusalem is troubled, too, because when Herod is upset, history teaches us that there's a bloodbath in town. Uh, Herod was, was known for putting several thousand people to death at a single time uh, when, when people upset him. And so Jerusalem is troubled. He gathers the religious leaders together and he says, when did the prophets, what did the prophets say about where the Messiah is to be born? And so we find them speaking about the fulfillment of Micah 5.2. In the original context of, of Micah chapter 5, the prophet's speaking prophetically and he's prophesying that whenever the Messiah was to be born, he'd be born in Bethlehem of Judah. There is another Bethlehem, right? It's up north in Galilee, but he was to be born in Bethlehem of Judah which is where David was born. That's the literal meaning of the verse in Micah 5.2. And so when the passage is fulfilled here, we, we find it as a literal fulfillment. And many prophecies fall into this category. Um, another, uh, some scholar has called this literal prophecy plus, plus literal fulfillment. Where will Messiah be born when he's born? Right there in this particular city. This is 750 to 675 years before the events. God said Messiah would be born there. That's amazing. It will happen like this. It will look like this. An amazing proof of the truth of the gospel. Herod then calls the Magi and asks them, when did this star appear? He, he speaks to them with, uh, with deceit and says, go and find him for me. You know, I'm so busy ruling the kingdom, but when you find him, come back and let me know and I'll go and worship him too. And so uh, the Magi then, helped perhaps by the prophecy, find out where he's supposed to be, or maybe they just follow the star, um, they, they listen to the king, they go on their way, and the star then start, stops acting like a star, right? And it, it starts acting a little bit more like the pillar of fire, and it goes and it stands over the place, it rests over the place where the child was, and so they follow the star there. It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were, they were close. God was leading them. They were excited. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, and they gave him gifts. I believe we can see here the kindness of God to truth-seeking, weary men who'd worn out their lives, perhaps, uh, in, in, the, in the search of truth, they'd considered many different religious ideas. They had studied and, and dug into to different books and, and practiced all kinds of religions and all different kinds of things, and they had not found any place to rest their soul. But they've been assured and promised by the scriptures that this one would bring them joy. Ecclesiastes 1.18 says, In much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. All the study that we can do about the world and its problems will teach us what? That, that humanity has been unable to solve its problems. And so all their learning perhaps just made them more and more miserable. 
Ecclesiastes 12, 12 says, Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. And I believe that they were tired, but they found joy in the presence of the child king. I believe they, they thought he was unlike any other. And they brought him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. After the opportunity to worship, they were warned in a dream, perhaps very similar to, to Joseph. Uh, being warned to marry Mary, uh, warned by an angel of the Lord, they were told not to go back to Herod. That man is a snake. He's going to try to kill the, this, this child. And so they depart to their country by their own way. Proverbs 19.23 says that the fear of the Lord leads to life. Whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. They're able to escape the plans of Herod, because they delight in this child king and the Lord speaks to them. And so we see here that the plans of two snakes are frustrated. Herod does not find his target and Satan cannot execute his plan to destroy the Messiah. Did you see the third reaction though, right? We have, we have the, the hatred of Herod and we have the joyous reaction of the Magi. But there's a third reaction. The scribes and religious leaders of Jerusalem, they did nothing. They were able to say Messiah would be born here, in this city, in this place, and yet their religious knowledge did not move them at all. It did not challenge them. It did not motivate them to worship. They, after giving their message to the king, perhaps just went home and ate dinner and went to bed and nothing changed inside of them. In 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah comes to the people and he says to them, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? The people were sometimes worshiping Baal and, and sometimes worshiping God. They would, they would choose to, to follow the Lord when it suited their purposes and they would choose to follow their own way when that suited their purposes. Elijah says, don't go on limping between two different opinions. If the Lord is God, follow him. And so the challenge this morning, as we see these three different options in front of us, the challenge is to test our reaction to Jesus. Are we indifferent to what it means to follow him? Is theology just a matter of the mind, of arranging ideas in our heads so that we have a perfect knowledge of who God is? One, you'll never get there. But two, that's not the reason why God tells us things. God, God gives us theological facts that our behaviors and actions might reflect his glory. That we might live in the way that he's commanded us to. There are many who they hear the good news of the gospel and they hear the demands that God places on their life and they're filled with outrage, perhaps inwardly and secretly, but they say, I will not serve. I will not obey. Or they say, no, loudly and publicly. But the reaction to Jesus of the Magi is joy because they know that following and fearing the Lord will bring them fulfillment. And so they rejoice and they give him gifts. How is it with your heart today? 
We see uh, the next section here, what is called the flight to Egypt. Um, it says in verse 13, when the, the wise men had departed, the word behold is there again to, to highlight the fact that something significant is happening right here. Like, look right here at this. This is important. Uh, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream. This, I believe, is the second dream that Joseph has had. And it tells him uh, to, that, that something's going to happen. The protector who's been assigned to this young child needs, uh, I, I think of Joseph in this situation kind of like Jack Bauer or Jason Bourne, you know? He's like, he's going to engage immediately because we know Joseph's character. He's a good and godly man. Um, God tells him, rise, take the child, flee, and stay in Egypt. Go down there as fast as you can because Herod is coming. And we see in verse 14 the instant obedience of Joseph. He obeys God's command at once and all the other commands that follow. And his righteousness and his obedience make Herod's deception and hypocrisy look even worse. Sometimes people will say that, that they can't become a Christian because they can't embrace the idea of blind faith or blind obedience. Uh, there's a difference between blind obedience and complete trust. So often, um, we ask the question, why, 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 why? Because there's a lack of trust, or there's a lack of belief, or there's a lack of assurance that, that, that we, can, we can truly trust what's going on in front of us. But confidence in the goodness of God, which, which Joseph had worked out over the course of his life, and as a believer, if you, have, if you have seen throughout your life and noted and marked when God has been faithful to you, when, when the, the, the difficulties arranged against you just seem to be insurmountable, or when, when you could not see another way, or your health condition was so bad that it would never change, and then God changes that situation and you see his faithfulness in your history, a knowledge of the historical goodness of God makes it easier to respond. And I believe that Joseph was a righteous man. And so when the angel spoke to him and said, rise, take the child, flee, he just, he knew that he could trust God and he went. How is it with you? Do you have a history of noting when God has been good to you? We, we pray for so many things. Do, do you know when God does something and he responds? And do you say, this is God's faithfulness? The Israelites were commanded to pile up uh, stones or to make monuments or to mark occasions with particular behaviors that they might remember the faithfulness of God in different situations so that they would remember their history and they would be able to respond in obedience. Why do they go down to Egypt? Isn't Egypt bad in the Bible? Right? Egypt is the place that you leave. Um, there's, a, there's a symbol or a pattern here, though. Right? Uh, remember that Moses had also been the target of the ruler of his day who sought to destroy him and all the other male Hebrew babies by ordering them slain, and that's in Exodus chapter 1. But Matthew desires that we would see Jesus as a second Moses. He's going to bring a new teaching on the law. He's going to bring a realization of the law and a fulfillment of the law as he goes to the cross as the true Israel. Uh, and so we're to see Moses or Jesus uh, going down into Egypt as Moses was born there. 
Uh, but the passage here says that the scripture is fulfilled. Um, the fulfillment is that, that, that what was spoken by the prophet is that God calls his son out of Egypt. You see that in verse 15 there, out of Egypt I've called my son. Notice here, Matthew did not say that Jesus was literally fulfilling a prophecy like checking off a box, born in Bethlehem of Judah. But the word fulfill here, it has a broader meaning than simply to, to make complete. It means uh, to establish completely or to, to fill up a sign, um, to, to prove the case, okay? When, when prophecy predicts something, um, there's predictive prophecy, an exact prophecy that, that, that uh, demonstrates the complete establishment of what the prophet predicted, Okay? He, he said, Bethlehem of Judah, and Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah. And then there's prophetic utterance that deal with the past or present. And, and when they are established, they demonstrate what the prophet said is similar to another event that had happened. And this is the sense in which Jesus' departure from Egypt fulfills Hosea's prophecy. It's a kind of a repetition. In music, uh, I believe in good music, you hear uh, earlier themes repeated over and over again. Um, instead of just doing uh, different and dramatic things for effect, the, the, uh, the musician will repeat earlier themes and change them. We see that Jesus is the Son of God over and over again in the book of Matthew. Um, but Israel, in its history, was called the Son of God in a different sense. Because God adopted Israel and brought Israel out of Egypt. That bringing Israel out of Egypt anticipated the life of the Messiah. And so what we see is, is Jesus reliving Messiah's experience because Israel's, or Jesus is, is reliving Israel's experience because Israel is a symbol of the Messiah to come. Recall that Joseph said in Genesis 45, uh, verse Seven, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Uh, Jacob's little tribe, just 70 people, went down into Egypt and grew into a multitude, and then God called them out. He protected them in Egypt. And that's what God is going to do with Messiah here. He sends him down into Egypt to be protected. And then uh, when he has escaped from danger, he returns to deliver the nation. The nation of Israel was called out of Egypt to bring Messiah into the world and to the cross. The Son of God was called out of Egypt to bring salvation to the world. So we see Herod's reaction in verses 16 through 18. When he saw that he'd been tricked, he was angry. Isn't this odd? Hypocrisy works this way. He would not have been angry but overjoyed if he had tricked them and they had come back and, and told him. But having intended evil and being outfoxed by God's message to the, the wise men and they fleeing a different way, he is enraged. When what he desired to do to them is done to him, it, it sends him into a fury. Now, he had determined the time that the star appeared, and so he had, he had set his range. He knew that, that the Messiah would be under two years old, and so we, we see a tragedy unfold here. Uh, Bethlehem is probably a population of 1,000, and so this probably affected 20, 30, maybe 50 little boys. 
Uh, the reason this is probably not recorded anywhere else in historical text is that this is a relatively minor outrage in Herod's life, that he would send soldiers down into a city and to kill all of one particular group to, to eliminate a threat. And so Herod sends his soldiers to kill Messiah, but God had already delivered him and brought him out of that situation. This is Herod's reaction to the coming of Messiah into the world. If, if, if I cannot live alongside of the threat of the Son of God and, and the implications that his existence has on my life, then I will try to destroy him. I will drive him out of existence. I will tear down the truth of the Son of God. But you cannot do that. God will not allow you. We see a fulfillment of prophecy here as well. Verse 17 says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Of all the prophecies, of the four prophecies in this section, this is the one that I, I've understood the least. And so I want to read, this guy's got a great name, this scholar. His name is Arnold G. Fruchtenbaum. I love that. Good German name, I suppose. Um, it says this, In the original context, Jeremiah is speaking of an event soon to come as the Babylonian captivity begins. As the Jewish young men were being taken into captivity... They were brought to by the town of Ramah. Not too far from Ramah is where Rachel was buried, and she was the symbol of Jewish motherhood. As the young men were marched towards Babylon, the Jewish mothers of Ramah came out weeping for sons they will never see again. Jeremiah pictured the scene as Rachel herself weeping for her children. That's the literal meaning of Jeremiah 31.15. And so the New Testament cannot change or reinterpret what that verse means in that context, nor does it try to do so. In this category of fulfilled prophecy, there is a New Testament, New Testament event that has one point of similarity with the Old Testament event. The verse is quoted as an application. The one point of similarity between Ramah and Bethlehem is that once again, Jewish mothers are weeping for sons they will never see again. And so the Old Testament passage is applied to the New Testament event. Otherwise, everything else is different. So, so listen, what we have here is a literal prophecy plus an application. And there are, there are three connection points between the two situations, okay? In both of them, a Gentile king is threatening the future of Israel, right? Destroying the sons in, in the captivity. But here, threatening the life of Israel by threatening to crush Messiah. The second point of similarity is that children are involved, and that makes this especially tragic. But the third point is this, just as in the captivity and in this situation, the future restoration and salvation of Israel was nevertheless secure. Herod cannot kill Messiah because God will not allow it, no matter what kind of damage He's done. And so we see the tears that were shed in the exile now being fulfilled. Tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come, the exile is over, the true Son of God has arrived, and he will introduce the new covenant, and no one will stop him. 
we see this continue today in our day and age where Messiah is taught and preached. There is a reaction of rage and destruction around the world, and it happens each and every day. Some estimates are that there are as few, perhaps as 200, but as many as 10,000 Christian martyrs per month throughout the world. In 145 countries, Christians are harassed in some way because of their beliefs. And I don't just mean harassed. I mean harassment to the point where they are killed. 70% of Christian martyr cases from around the world today originate in just one country. And that's the country of Nigeria. In between 1917 and 1980, nearly 15 million Christians died living in prison camps where they were placed because of their faith. When the world hears of Christ, it tries to crush him. But listen to what the the apostles say in Acts 4.29. After they are beaten for professing their faith, they go and they pray. And in Acts 4.29, the apostles say, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. The scriptures teach us that God is making, as the Jesus Storybook Bible that I read to Hank says, God is making every sad thing come untrue. But he's doing it in his own way, in his own time, so that it will be unmistakably his work. But he has given life to all those who follow him in Messiah. And so it doesn't matter what the world does. Because the life that God has brought into the world in Christ and the life that he's given to Christians cannot be crushed out. God's plan will not be stopped. That's part of the meaning of this prophecy here. As we close, we see the return to Nazareth in verses 19 to 23. Herod dies. Uh, Behold, an angel appears and another command is given to Joseph, rise, take the child, go. Uh, Joseph begins to head back into Israel, but he finds out that Herod's son, who is just less wicked than Herod, but rules over less territory, that he's ruling in Judea. And so he says he's afraid to live there. And so he withdraws to the land of Galilee. And then we see a fourth fulfillment here, um, that he would be called a Nazarene. Interestingly, one scholar says this, There is no Old Testament passage that predicted that the Messiah would come from Nazareth or that people would call him a Nazarene. So what does that mean? The scripture would be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Am I saying that there's an error here? No. Um, We have a third kind of, a fourth kind of fulfillment here. One, Matthew said the prophecy came through prophets, not a prophet. Okay? And this is the only place in the first gospel that he says this. Matthew also does not say that the prophets said or wrote this prediction. He said what was said or spoken through them happened. So he's quoting indirectly here, right? There's there's no passage that predicted that Messiah would come from Nazareth or that people would call him a Nazarene because he certainly is not a Nazarene like the Old Testament describes. How then could Matthew say that he fulfilled the scripture by living in Nazareth? The most probable explanation seems to be that Nazareth was an especially despised town in the despised region of Galilee in Jesus' day. John 1, 46, Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
John 7.52, they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Speaking to Nicodemus, Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The Old Testament prophets predicted over and over again, and the people refused to believe this, that they would despise the Messiah. Matthew returns to this theme over and over in his gospel. The writer appears to be giving the substance of several Old Testament passages here rather than quoting any of them. There's no reference to to the the Hebrew word uh, branch here, as some say. Um, But the idea is this, that, that David's heir emerges from a lowly, obscure place and that his teaching and that he himself was lowly and despised. Psalm 22.6, a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, particularly in his crucifixion. I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Psalm 69, verse 8, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Psalm 69, 20, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Isaiah 53, 2, he grew up from before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and, for his, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Jesus said to a man who said that he would follow him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus speaking to the people who were hearing him teach and who were applauding him, but but not obeying him, not following him, not responding to the message. He said, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He was lowly and despised. And though we read the Gospels written from the perspective of of Jesus after the events, which are written to highlight and to display these things in his life, I believe until he began teaching and doing miracles, he was utterly unnoticeable. And that even in his teaching, had we heard it before the Holy Spirit changed us, we would have rejected it. If If we had seen him, we would have been unimpressed. And that's the way that many people react to his teaching today. They say, that's crazy. That's the way we react many times when we hear the implications of the gospel, when we hear this is who you are in Christ, or this is how you must believe, or this is what you must obey. We say, that's no, I cannot do that. That is too much. And we are despising the Messiah who came and saved us. And so we must thaw our hearts or break up our, our hard ground, as the prophet says, and repent again. 
The Jesus who threatens the king, he cannot be stopped or crushed. The Jesus who the religious people know about but don't seek, he must be pursued because it's not just a matter of intellectual belief. The Jesus who the city of Jerusalem is indifferent to, the world despises the real Jesus. They say things like, Jesus was a great moral teacher if people would just obey his commands. And I believe they know nothing about what he teaches when they say that. But the Jesus who the Magi came to worship, the real Jesus, fulfills the heart and the mind and feeds the soul. And so let us not respond like the king and drive the true demands of Christ out of our heart. Let us be unlike the religious leaders who were indifferent to Jesus when they heard his words. Let us instead be like the magi who heard and who rejoiced. Let us receive him as the messenger of God sent to us and rejoice in the goodness that he brings to us each and every day. Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. I pray, Lord, we, we, are, we are like those who, who walk on a dirt road with bare feet and in our lives we accumulate sin and we drift, we, we fall away from, from true devotion at times and we must break up the hard ground of our hearts and renew our repentance. And so I pray, Father, if there are, are any here who've drifted from you, that that they would find new mercies and reassurance from you that you still love them and forgive them and that their hearts would be filled with joy. I pray for anyone who's here who is rejecting the teachings of Christ that you would soften their heart and that they would see the beauty of what you've done in your son. And I pray for anyone who's indifferent, who's made theology or or the Bible or church attendance or church involvement just a matter of, of intellectual life and not who they are. I pray that you would soften their heart as well and that they would come back to the heart of worship as the song says and find that it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. May we honor you with our hearts and not just with our lips and may you truly be our delight and joy each and every day. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.